0: Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm here with John Hanning. John, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: John is with Specialty Tax Group. We're going to refer to it as STG throughout the interview, but principal within the Fixed Asset Cost Segregation and Accounting Methods groups. Over the past 15 years as a fixed asset specialist, John is responsible for the business development efforts for fixed asset services, including new client identification, proposals, and client deliverables. He has led and executed cost recovery studies on more than 5,000 facilities, including healthcare, retail, manufacturing, commercial office, multifamily, power generation, and dealerships. And he's got a litany of certifications and presentations he's done and accolades, which we'll include in the show notes, but it's, it's very impressive. And we've worked with John and his group. A lot over the last few years, so I'm excited to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, no, this is exciting times. Living in the very sexy world of especially tax, you know, deductions and incentives and credits. You know, I I look forward to getting into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and so let's go right there. I mean, maybe not the most exciting piece of the business, but when you're talking about real estate, you know, everyone lauds the tax advantages of direct real estate ownership. Mm depreciation and cost segregation analysis is a big part of our pitch. We only work with taxable investors and it is a very powerful tool that people should use. So let's kind of start high level. What is depreciation and how does the cost segregation study relate to that depreciation?
2: Yeah. So we work with clients that, that own bricks and sticks, right? So if you are a franchisor that has multiple restaurants or you're a real estate company that owns medical office buildings or apartment complexes you're very likely a client of STG and the IRS gives you gives the taxpayer an allowable depreciation deduction for the recovery and or the wear and tear of that facility over time so Usually the long life property for a commercial property will be 39 years or for a residential property will be 27 and a half years. What cost segregation does is accelerates those tax deductions allowable to the client. So real property depreciate over long life, 39 years or 27 and a half years. Personal property might be recovered over five or seven years. Land improvements are recovered over 15 years. Cost segregation is the exercise of identifying those additional assets and assigning the correct recovery periods. With bonus depreciation at play currently at 100%, that allows a taxpayer to quickly recover to offset income their depreciation. So we're using additional deductions to drive down income to create cash flow. Maybe you roll that cash flow into the next deal or you know put it in the market and and make a ton of money with it so it's a time value of money concept and that's really where the value comes in we it should be pointed out we don't create any additional deductions we just front load the deductions allowable to the client through a cost segregation
1: and there's really to your point there's two things going on here right there's there's accelerated depreciation which is providing a theoretically better after-tax return for the investor, which is allowing you to theoretically offset losses elsewhere in your portfolio if they were to occur. And so again, for a taxable investor that has multiple real estate investments, extremely powerful. You referenced bonus depreciation. Could Mm -hmm. you define that term within the parlance of commercial real estate professionals?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. So bonus depreciation was born... Back in 2001, actually, a significant event in our country, September 11th, 2001, and so the service came up with it, or Congress came up with an idea of, hey, let's incentivize people to continue to build, continue to add to their properties, and so it's changed over the its time frame. It was 30 percent, it was 50 percent, it went away, it came back, it was 100 percent, so on and so forth. But the most recent act, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that impacted bonus depreciation made it 100% bonus eligible for five years, 2017 for five years, and then it steps down by 20% in the remaining five years. So we have a roadmap of 10 years to understand how bonus depreciation is going to act. Now, what bonus is, is that any short life asset is eligible for bonus depreciation, this is newly constructed and acquired properties now through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That means that you can take bonus depreciation at 100% for any short life asset. For example, if I was able to accelerate uh, a half a million dollars into personal property, five-year recoverable, instead of recovering that half a million dollars over five years, bonus depreciation at 100% says that I can take it all in year one. So that's in its based bonus depreciation is based on the placed in service date, not based on when you make the change. So if you place something in service in 2022 and are able to identify short life assets defined as 20 years or less, you can apply a hundred percent bonus to the that total value. That helps because you know you might have a big tax bill at the end of the year and you can drive down that tax bill create that additional cash flow by exercising and pulling that depreciation lever
1: and you reference the the step down to the sunset within the depreciation the bonus depreciation regime we are entering into the last year of 100 percent depreciation could you maybe walk us through kind of the timeline of, of where we stand today we're recording this in October of 2022.
2: Yeah, so 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act were, was released, and we had 100% bonus through 2022. So anything that's placed in service until 1231, 2022 is eligible for bonus depreciation. There are a couple of caveats to that, but in, generally speaking, that's correct. Now, as you mentioned, rightfully so, that bonus depreciation steps down by 20% over the next five years. So next year, If you place something in service in 2023, it will be eligible for 80% bonus, 2024, 60% bonus, and so on and so forth until it's exhausted after 2026.
1: And I'm asking you maybe a very challenging question, but do you think that will maintain? Do you think they'll extend 100% bonus? I mean, what are the folks on Capitol Hill saying? It's always up for for debate what happens with this and 1031 and all the other kind of real estate related tax incentives.
2: Yeah. So I'll answer the the question with a little bit of historical knowledge. So bonus depreciation in previous years prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was just that. It was a bonus at the end of the year, retroactive, you know, back to the previous tax year. So it really wasn't a planning tool. It was just, you know, what you got at the end of the year, and you go ahead and apply bonus. We always kind of waited around to the end of the year to find out what might happen, and now we have a roadmap, which is great. And a lot of taxpayers are using it as a planning tool. What's going to happen in the future? We're hopeful that it's been around since 20 or 2001 in some format. We're hopeful that it's a a tool that continues. It's a pretty powerful tool to to offset income for real estate owners, real estate you know, spurring real estate or Allowing clients to to take advantage of this has really pushed real estate forward. You know, it's it's been people are getting maybe out of other businesses and into real estate to offset that income, becoming real estate professionals. So what's gonna happen? You know, my crystal ball tells me that we're hopeful that it continues, but you never really know. What we do know is that, you know, it's an election year. So we're gonna have change. And for us, change is good, right? And what What'll happen is, is that I tell you that, hey, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is going to drag this out through 2026 or until the next change comes. So, you know, we may experience 80%, at least that's what the rules tell us for next year. But, you know, that could get changed by the service. We could have additional tax guidance come out and that could get changed. So my crystal ball, my crystal ball is a little fuzzy today.
1: I understand. It it will be horse trading like usual in these things. So you're gonna hear a lot about this one way or the other, but it will be on the table and who knows what will happen with it. So so given the the reductions, and let's just assume that the current sunset step down maintains it does it negate the benefits of cost seg should in your opinion and experience, should people still continue to do them even though it's reduced?
2: Yeah, they should still continue to do them. Look, accelerated deductions is just one component of cost segregation. The other, so that's the primary goal. If I say to a client, hey, if you pay me $10,000 for cost seg, I can create a million dollars of additional deductions. They're able to get their mind around that pretty easily. But the secondary goal is to create the different units of property for future dispositions. So when we deliver on a study, we don't just, you know, tell you, hey, you closed on a building, you know, it's three million dollars all in the same bucket. We tell you, hey, look, this is how much is applied to the roof, the windows, the floors, the doors, all the personal property, everything on the exterior footprint of the building that is a, a land improvement. We break it down into a much higher level of detail. So if in the future you do a renovation, maybe you're forced to capitalize the cost associated with that renovation. The service now tells you, you can take an allowable deduction or disposition for the old asset that you otherwise threw in the garbage. So you're able to go back to the study and say, okay, look, I, when I bought the building, they didn't tell me that I had you know a total window amount of you know $5,000, but I still have a recovery of half of that. And I'm going to go ahead and, and take that as an allowable disposition in the current year.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, people should continue to do these things, but it, it's a reasonable question to ask. If people are—you're going to start to hear a lot about the step down, the reduction, but it's still incredibly powerful. Let's talk about kind of timing. Say you're, you know, acquiring a piece of commercial real estate or developing one. At what point do you engage with your firm to begin the study? What's like the, the most best practice in terms of timing?
2: So. As you mentioned, we're transaction-based, so it's either typically an acquisition or newly constructed, newly constructed an entire building itself, or maybe just a a renovation of an existing building. So I'll talk about them separately. Acquisition, the day of closing. Typically, if we're uh, involved at the day of closing, it's the top of everybody's mind. Everybody has their fingertips on items that we need, closing statement, property condition reports, uh, appraisals. uh, It makes it easy for us and for the client to trade information and complete the study also it allows us to have the study done well in advance of when you need it for the tax filing we don't always get that advantage but you know if we have an opportunity to really dig our teeth into what the property is you know how it's being used those kinds of things really oftentimes yield a better study from a supportability standpoint now that's separate from newly constructed We like to be a part of the once you begin construction. Now, the construction may take even two years. And so it's a a lot of hurry up and wait. But what we can do as, as cost segregation professionals is sit down with the general contractor and the client and ask them to break up certain components. They may have the information, but they provide it to the client in a summary format. We go to the general contractor and say, well, you know, I I know you have it. Let's break it down. So don't just give me a flooring number. Give me the number for tile and carpeting and and VCT and all those things as well. That way, when it's all said and done, instead of going to the drawings and estimating uh, values for those items, we have the actual cost. When we do estimating, typically we're erring on the side of being conservative in that case, we would not have to be. We can get the actual cost again, helping with supportability. This drags on, you know. It, as long as you know things are constructed, we don't complete our study or finalize our study until the project is one hundred percent complete and all the you know costs have trickled in. But it certainly helps with supportability of the study, and that's when right at, right at the onset is when we'd love to get involved.
1: So you're, you're using the term supportability. That kind of triggers a question of, is there audit risk here? How does the IRS typically view these studies? I assume that you've been through kind of multiple transactions with the with the IRS.
2: Right. So, you know, some people say, well, I don't want to cost segregation study because it, it increases my chance of audit. That's not true. There's no truth to that whatsoever. But I tell taxpayers, you know, you can put anything you want on a tax return. You just have to be able to support it. And that's where we come in, right? I've seen the wet thumb in the air method of doing cost segregation. Maybe a, a you know real estate professional has an attorney that says, hey, I can do that. Or maybe they have a, a CPA that says, hey, look, I think I can figure this out. It's really a study that, that is heavy engineering based. We're using nationally recognized costing models to develop this. So when the study is complete, all of our studies, at least at STG, are provided with audit support. So we think we're pretty good at what we do. We want to be able to defend that. There's audit techniques guide that shows you how you should do a cost segregation study. Our final report will follow along with that audit techniques guide. So nothing is bulletproof, but like I said, we think we're pretty good at what we do. And we'd like to show that off, especially when the IRS comes knocking. And really, it's kind of an educational event, typically for for both parties, on how we approached the study, how we completed the study. And we've not a lot of studies are reviewed by the IRS, but uh, the ones they are, we've had almost very little to no change in those studies.
0: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer to peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital you'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today.
1: Yeah, we'll say for listeners who've never gone through this, STG is first in class and produces a tome of materials through engineering and, and tax professionals. And again, it's one of those things where you may feel like it's overkill, but if you get a call from the IRS, you'd much rather have this in your back pocket and this firm being able to produce the documents and, and their knowledge base if that were to happen. So it's definitely nice to have have you all as a resource there. Are there situations where it doesn't make sense to do a cost seg?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the couple of questions we ask right out of the gate are, are you making money? Meaning, are you paying taxes? And are you going to hold on to the property for any length of time? So, the answer to the question the first question is if it's no, I'm not making any money. Well, I don't want to have them spend money to create a cost segregation that creates additional deductions to offset income because there is no income. So, in that scenario, you know, I would tell them, hey, don't do this. We don't want to create any larger NOL that you already have by spending money to do this. So, if potentially they're not making money now but they're going to make money in 5 years. We can do that. We can do a cost segregation study on a look back, do it 5 years from now. Now they've got the money, they do need the deductions. That's a lever they want to pull at that time. The other one is, hey, I'm a flipper. I want to, you know, I buy, you know, properties, I I lease them up and I try to get rid of them within a year or 2 years. Is cost segregation good for me? And I would tell them no. So Part of the net present value or part of the the value of cost segregation, this is again a time value of money concept, right? You need in one of the form, you know, within that formula, the component of time is now missing. So I would tell them at that point, no, it, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense for somebody that is purchasing something and looking to get rid of it right away. Now, you might do a project and somebody comes along two years from now and says, hey, I'll give you double what you paid for it. Well, you're going to consider that sale, even though you did a cost segregation. So that's not a problem. But yeah, I would, again, ask those two questions first. Am I making money? Could I use the deductions? And then am I going to hold on to this to make sure that I'm getting the full benefit of the cost segregation? If those two are yes, then move forward. If it's, if it's no, I would not move forward.
1: So it could affect exit strategy, theoretically, depending on kind of timing and and the type of deal that it is, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah. that's right.
1: And then how about sales price allocation? So I I know that's kind of ancillary to cost seg, but associated with it. You know, if you're talking about kind of a seller, you know, is the buyer bound by those price allocations, the purchase agreement, or could the buyer still perform a cost seg? How does that interplay work?
2: There is a recent case study where there was a allocation provided within the purchase agreement. Then a cost segregation was done and the service audited that and said, no, you can't do that. Typically, we would tell a a buyer to be silent in the agreements regarding what are they paying for real property versus personal property and so on and so forth. Now, you're always going to have some type of allocation when we're doing a cost segregation because there is depreciable property and non-depreciable property. You bought a building on a parcel. So that parcel where the land or the dirt itself is non-depreciable and you have to come up with a value for that. And then of course, the bricks and the sticks, anything atop that soil is depreciable. And typically we would guide a, a taxpayer to look at maybe an independent appraisal to find out an allocation between the two. Typically they're looking at auditors' websites that'll provide you some type of allocation. Um, I have a lot of clients that are using, you know, an 80-20 split. That might be a, appropriate in most parts of the country. If you're in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, well, land might be a little cheaper out there. Maybe that, that doesn't work. If you're in, you know, Manhattan, maybe that allocation doesn't work. But double checking it, make sure you're you're comfortable with it. As a cost segregation professional, we kind of conflict out of creating that for clients, but we certainly provide guidance through that process.
1: And so, kind of related to your last comment, if you do have an in house CPA, if you have a COO or accounting tax group internally, and I'm asking you to kind of talk your book here, but why can't your in house group do this themselves?
2: Why can't they create the allocation or do the I'm cost sorry, segregation? Did,
1: I guess either, but let's go back to cost seg as the focus.
2: Right. So the individuals that are qualified to do cost segregation are, are typically individuals that come from an, some type of engineering background or construction background. I know at times I'll have clients say, well, why, why doesn't my CPA just do this? Well, they're, they're typically not qualified to understand how much a roof cost on a building in which was acquired. Like I said, we use nationally recognized costing models to create each component of a building, put a value to each component to a building. And to your point before, it goes into a level of detail that is eye-popping to most. So when we're doing a cost segregation study, yes, we're, we're building a, a square foot model, but then we're also looking at every asset and then how it's used within the property. There might be some building lighting. General lighting in a building is long life property. Task lighting or decorative lighting would be personal property. So even using the same asset as lighting, it could be treated two different ways. So this is going to give our our profession or myself way too much credit, but this is how it was explained to me. You have to be a good engineer because you have to know how buildings are constructed and put together. Uh, you have to be a good tax accountant or CPA because, you know, you you need to know how this works into the overall client's tax strategy, but then you have to be a good attorney because we're using case law every step of the way to determine this asset should be treated like this and here's the case law as it relates to it. So again, you've got to bring all of those facets together to be a good cost segregation engineer. And be able to support, you know, your your findings.
1: And what's the typical, I know every deal is gonna be a little bit different, but typical cost, timeline, et cetera, for a cost seg study.
2: Yeah. So cost from you know, cost perspective, it really could be all over the board. But typically speaking, you've got a cost segregation that would be, you know, most are gonna fall in the range of seven to twelve thousand dollars. Now you've got large, you know, complexes that you know, multiple buildings built over multiple years, multiple different uses, you know, those are going to be pretty high, high fees. Also, you know, you've got single family homes, maybe they're being used as an Airbnb, certainly not going to be a $7,000 project. So they're outliers for sure. But that's a general range. Now, from a timing perspective, we work within the world of we spend fifty percent of our time collecting information from clients and fifty percent of the time actually doing the project so typically speaking, we can perform a cost segregation which includes an on site visit within thirty to sixty days. That's generally the time frame that it takes us. We have a great client, good connectivity that's shortened
1: yeah, I will say we've worked with you a number of times and it's very fast. you all knock it out quickly because we get, we know each other. I think Jared, our COO gets you everything you guys need right off the bat and you revert very quickly. So along those lines, if you are a operator, sponsor developer with in-house accounting, are there things that you can do in-house to help speed along the process and make it more efficient on your end?
2: yeah again one the best thing for for us is just connectivity right and working with your group or working with other groups that that are familiar with our process you know everybody kind of knows their role and they provide us information sometimes you know in, in your in your situation without asking which is exceptional so yeah we also at the end of each project like to sit down and go through the nuances every building every structure is different And so we like to sit down with the folks that we do final reports delivery for and kind of explain, hey, this is the nuance on this property or this is why the benefits were so good on this one versus the other one. It's a knowledge transfer game, right? Yes, we're really good at doing the cost segregation, but we also want to take time to educate our clients and your in-house folks, whether it might be a, a CFO or a controller or somebody with, you know within the federal tax department of your firm to explain the process, but then also explain you know things to look out for. So we try to do our best to be an extension of our client's team, and and therefore we're all on the same page moving forward.
1: Yeah, Jared is a detail oriented individual, so I'm sure he's, he you could you all <laughs> probably enjoy working with him.
2: Yeah, yeah. As engineers, we we're we're the same same yeah. folks, right? So. We get excited about that thing.
1: As we round out the conversation here, are there I, I know enough to be dangerous, but particular properties lend themselves to more depreciation than others, right? Could you maybe walk us through that detail?
2: Yeah. So what we're looking for when we're doing a cost segregation is we're trying to take long life property and put it into accelerated property five or, or seven or, or fifteen years. And so your to your question is is that what are properties that have more fit and finishes or specialized power and or plumbing properties that have a lot more land improvements associated with them those are going to be better targets for us so for example you know if we have a warehouse that is down a a very short or that that is kind of a zero lot line well there's not a whole lot of specialty plumbing and electrical within a warehouse. All it is, is being used as storage. The walls, the roof, the floor, all of that is long life property. Typically those, and then again, as a zero lot line, there's not a whole lot of land improvements around it either. We can run an analysis on that. And we always do with every engagement, we want to both qualify it and then quantify it, right? We want to quantify whether it's a good opportunity or not. And if it is, you know, how much benefit is there. So in that case, warehouse, zero lot line, I'd probably say, Hey, let's forego this opportunity. Now the, in the other light, it's, you know, maybe there's a, a medical office building, medical office building. Every suite has five exam rooms and, and every one of those exam rooms has uh, specialty plumbing and electrical and cabinetry task lighting to do the exam itself. Those are very fruitful for what we do. So heavy manufacturing, very fruitful for what we do. Those are two that that stick out in my mind. We do a lot of retail, strip centers as well, apartment complexes. Anytime you have a building that has a lot of fit and finishes that makes it not just a building, but makes it a building built out to help the client function or complete their business, that oftentimes is a very good opportunity for us
1: and if you are new to this space and you're interviewing folks, what are the right questions to ask? What are the red flags? How do you find a shop like STG of high caliber
2: so typically i would I would understand how long they've been doing cost segregation in my case it's, it's you know twenty years as you note know, with the gray hair also too you want to be able to take a look at their their draft documents. You know what? What is the deliverable going to look like? I would ask that at the onset of before you know signing any engagement letter. You want to make sure that that deliverable follows along with the ATG Audit Techniques Guide. Also, too, if if they're willing to give you audit support as a part of the engagement, likely means that they're willing to stand behind their work product. Typically, uh, I would I just rolled off as the president of ASCSP, which is American Society of Seg Professionals. I'm a certified member. I'm currently on the board as the past president. I was the treasurer. I was on the education committee for a long time. This is an organization that helps credential, holds accountable, and educates its membership. So if they're a certified cost segregation professional from ASCSP, you're likely getting the cream of the crop.
1: Yeah, like I said, um, when I did the bio, his uh, certifications are extensive, and he only listed a handful of things that he's involved with. So this, these are the kind of what you want to see on the on the CV and the resume for sure. John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. You know, maybe not the most you know dynamic part of being a commercial real estate investor, but super <laughs> important and incredible benefit for taxable investors. If folks are interested in connecting with you and the firm to learn about your services, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
2: Just get online, Google specialty tax group, and you'll see all the information that allows you to connect with us. And you can even fill out an online form and we'll give you a call to see if maybe cost segregation is the right thing for you. Look forward to connecting with anybody that does that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners... If you did enjoy the conversation, please do leave us a review and a rating. Let us know what your favorite part of the conversation was. John, thank you again for joining us today. And hopefully we'll have some more work for you here soon. I know we've been keeping you busy the last few years, so we hope to continue doing that.
2: You sure have. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time and enjoy the weekend.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.